chapter 12, Frank mentioned to you that we've been studying this book now for, as you can see on the top of your, your study sheet there, if you've already got it, this is now our 68th message in this series that brought us just a little further than halfway through the book, and we've been a little bit out of sync here in the last uh, several weeks, in fact, probably the longest time that we've been out of, of Revelation since we started. Uh, We've been out the last two weeks. Last week we had communion, and then the week before some strange guy in an army outfit showed up here and tried to refocus the troops. And uh, so for our guest's sake, and really for all of our sake today, since we've been out of it for a, a few weeks, let's just take a, a few minutes to, to get our bearings of where we are and try to set the context of, of where we are when we come to Revelation chapter 12. Now, one of the things that we, we've talked about a, a lot that is just so basic to your understanding of, of this book that really is not a difficult book to understand. In it, some places, it's a little bit difficult to believe what you're reading, but it's really not that difficult to understand. But you, if you understand this, it'll help you immensely in your study of the book of Revelation. From chapters 6 through 19, what he does is he brings us four times through what is known as the tribulation period. Every week when we throw out terminology like that, we feel like we need to give somewhat of a basic definition. We're living, according to what the Bible says, in the last days. The next event that God talks about is going to take place on this planet is all of the believers in Jesus Christ, all those who have come into a relationship with God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, a trumpet is going to sound, and everybody on this planet that knows him is going to be caught up in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, to be with the Lord. That is going to usher in on this planet a period of a seven-year tribulation. Jesus said concerning this period, there's never been a time like it before, and there'll never be a time like it after. It's a terrible time of judgment and destruction on this planet, and that seven-year period ends with the second coming of Christ to this planet to fight the battle of Armageddon and then after that set up his millennial kingdom which will remain on this earth for a period of a thousand years. But from Revelation chapter 6 through 19, what he's doing is he's bringing us four times through that seven-year tribulation period. And we have seen in chapters 6, 7, the first part of verse 8, he brought us in those chapters through the tribulation period for the first time. And he did so through the, the opening of seven seals, seven seals of a book. Then from chapter 8 to chapter 11, he brings us through the tribulation period for the second time, this time through the sounding of seven trumpets. Now when we come to chapter 12, now this is where we are right now. What God does as we come to chapter 12 is he begins to take us through this third time Coming through the tribulation period, this time it's going to take us from chapter 12 all the way to 14. Through these chapters, he's emphasizing the, the ministry and the work of the Antichrist on this planet. And what he does is he brings us through this period, showing us the revealing of seven personages. And then we'll, in the next several months or so, we're going to get to chapter 15. And right on through verse 19, he'll bring us through the tribulation period for the fourth time through the pouring of seven vials, the pouring of seven vials. But we're in chapter 12 now, so we're coming through this tribulation period now for the third time. 
And in verses 1 through 5, and we, we've, we've already begun, in fact, we've had two messages in Revelation chapter 12 to this, this point. We're still in the first five verses. And what we've been doing over the last several sessions together is we've been seeking to identify three of these seven personages that we're going to see in the next several chapters. We've been looking at the woman, the child, and the great red dragon that we find in the first five verses of chapter 12. And we look, first of all, in verses 1 and 2 at the woman. He says in verse 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman. Now, as I said just a few minutes ago, a lot of folks get themselves all intimidated when they come to the book of Revelation, and you hear them talk about, oh, my goodness, I, I can never understand the book of Revelation, you know, because it's got, oh, so much symbolism in that book and all that stuff, I'll never understand that, when really that is not a true statement. Listen, the book of Revelation does not have much symbolism in the whole book. Now, a lot of people think that it's symbolism, but there's really very little symbolism in this book. What makes the book of Revelation hard is very simply not believing what you're reading right where you find it. You see, most people read all of this stuff in the book of Revelation, and they ask themselves the wrong question. They're reading through it, and, and they say, what does all of this mean? When nine times out of ten in the book of Revelation... The question you need to ask is, what does it say? Because it means exactly what it says. And when it says that it's a, a, a demonic scorpion locust that comes up out of the bottomless pit and there's smoke all around, it's not symbolizing anything. You know what's going to happen? The bottomless pit's going to open and demonic scorpion locusts are going to come up out of that thing. You see, you just, you just believe what it says. And for those few times in the book of Revelation where it does use symbolism, the passage is always very clear to identify the fact that it's using symbolism, and it's also very clear to define that symbolism for you right there in that passage, and such is the case in chapter 12. He specifically tells you in verse 1 that this woman is a wonder. She's Wonder Woman, you know? She, he tells you the woman is a wonder. In other words, she's a sign or or she's a symbol. She's a symbolic representation of something. Now, our job is to figure out what is she a symbol of. And we have seen over the last several weeks that though the Roman Catholic Church says that the woman is Mary, and though Protestants and even most Baptists say that the woman is the church, what the passage says what the Bible says, and that's what we're going to bank on, no matter what the Baptists or the Presbyterians or the Catholics or anybody else says, we're going to go with what the book says. And what the book says is that whoever she is, she has to bring forth the Lord Jesus Christ. She has to be persecuted by the devil. She has to flee to the wilderness. She has to fly there on the wings of an eagle. And she has to be fed there 1,260 days or three and a half years. And you put all of that together and what you find in the Word of God is there is only one that fits that description across the board and it is who? It's Israel. And going on in verse 1, look at it, John says that this woman that he saw was clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And we went back to Genesis chapter 37 
verses 9 and 10. And what we saw is back there in Genesis 37, Joseph dreamed a dream that included all of these same exact elements. And in that passage, it defined for us the fact that the sun is Jacob or Israel, that the moon is Rachel, and the twelve stars are the twelve sons of Jacob and, and Rachel, which were the twelve tribes of, of Israel. And again, just showing you the fact, this woman is Israel. And verse 2 says, And she, that is the woman, Israel, and she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And I walked you through the Old Testament showing you the long, travailing, painful process it was for the nation of Israel to finally bring forth the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. And we saw that immediately after man sinned in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, what God did is he walked down into that garden, he got in the face of Satan, and this is what he said. He looked at him and he said, through the seed of the woman, there's going to be one who is going to come that is going to crush your stinking head. I'm adding the word stinking, but you weren't there either, and so you don't know for sure if he said it or not. But he got in Satan's face and he said, I'm telling you, there's one that's coming through the seed of the woman and he is going to crush your head. And from that moment on, there was a battle that had to do with that seed. And the devil, listen, the devil did everything within his power to keep that one from coming. And the long, travailing, painful battle continued on with that seed for approximately 4,000 years. And then finally, here comes this wild-eyed guy. And he's standing out there on the streets in Jerusalem saying, He's coming, y'all. He's coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And all of a sudden, bam, it happened in Bethlehem. The Lord Jesus Christ was born of a virgin girl named Mary in the city of Bethlehem. So the first main character we find here is the woman. And the woman is Israel. Then in verse 3, we look at the second main character, the great red dragon. Verse 3 says, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And he goes into quite a description there. But to make sure that there could never be anybody who could ever make a mistake about the identity of who this great red dragon is, verse 9 just flat out tells you, and the great red dragon was cast out. Here it is. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. And what we did by comparing Scripture with Scripture is we went back to see that there's a dragon sitting back in Job chapter 41. And through Job chapter 41, what God does is He gives us the most thorough account in the entire Bible of the person and working of Satan. Satan is identified in Job chapter 41 as Leviathan, a seven-headed, fire-breathing, smoke-blowing dragon that God says that if you could see him, this is what he says in, in Job 41, this is not my opinion, Job chapter 41, God says, if you could see who he really is, if you could see him, God says, the way that I see him with your physical eyes, God says, it would cause you to literally pass out. 
I mean, you'd look at him, take one look, and you would fall over backwards in a faint. And God says, with this one, this Leviathan, this great red dragon, he says, if you try to approach him with, with carnal, fleshly weapons, the weapons of the, the flesh, what he says in Job chapter 41 is that this dragon will laugh in your face. What God says is he takes iron and he breaks it like it's a toothpick. He says arrows just bounce off of him. The stones that you throw at him with your slingshot, he just yanks those things out of the air, crushes them in your face, and throws them down to the ground like powder. There's only one weapon that God says that you can use against this great red dragon. And folks, it's the sharp two-edged sword that you and I are holding in our hands this morning. You better watch out. That book will cut you. It's sharp, man. It's so sharp that it can pierce Leviathan. It's the only weapon that we have. You know why it is? It's the only weapon we... Y'all don't... You couldn't figure that out? It's the only weapon we need. Amen? He gave that weapon to us, and we, we've got it. And we saw, as we began to look through this, we began to see here in Revelation chapter 12 and, and verse 3, how those seven heads with seven crowns upon them represent the, the king and kingdoms through which Satan, the god of this world, has controlled and is controlling the world. Now, if you weren't here, let, let me just repeat that for you so, you so you got it. When it talks about he's got seven heads, seven crowns upon those heads, what he's letting you know is, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, it identifies Satan as the god of this world. And you can go throughout the entire history of man, from the beginning all the way to the ending, all the way past today, and what you're going to find is that God takes all of the kingdoms of this world and he says there's only been seven and there will only always be seven and through these seven Satan has controlled and w is controlling the world and what we did is I, I brought you through the Bible and I showed you how those seven kingdoms that began in Genesis chapter 10 with Nimrod who was the king of Babylon that was your first head it then goes to Pharaoh the king of Egypt, the second, then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, then Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, then Darius, the king of Persia, then Alexander the Great, the, the king of Greece, and then here comes the final one. Here comes that seventh head of Satan, or the dragon. And what we find in the Word of God, according to the book of Luke, is it was Caesar Augustus. He was the king of Rome, and this would have been the power that would have been running the world at the time of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to this planet. Now listen, that power, the power of Rome, the power of Caesar Augustus, ruled this world from approximately 100 B.C., now listen, 100 B.C. to 346 A.D. But now listen, you want to pay special attention to this seventh head and that seventh crown because you see though it ruled the world from 100 BC to 346 AD what you need to understand is that at that point at 346 AD that power did not cease to exist Satan is still using that power to run 
the world and listen he'll continue to use that power to run the world until the time of the second coming of Christ according to Revelation chapter 17 the seventh head or the seventh crown simply went into a mystery form in 346 AD or approximately there thereat it went into a mystery form that is called mystery Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth and now listen in that mystery form what Rome did is switched from being a military power to control the world politically to a mystery religious power to control the world politically are you hearing that there was a switch that took place that power went into a mystery form but what Rome is doing is still controlling the world it's the seventh head of Satan it's that seventh crown and folks listen that's exactly why the Roman Catholic Church is also referred to as Vatican State because it's a political entity and if you question that Revelation chapter 17 and verse 18 says in reference to the Roman Catholic Church that she is the one that has, has historically reigned over the kings of the earth she's still dominating and she has ever since the time of Christ she just switched into a mysterious religious form but she is the seventh head and crown of the dragon and folks the, the cold hard facts are and, and now listen to me I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put it out there exactly the way that the Bible does but the cold hard facts are when you compare Revelation 17 back with Proverbs chapter 2 what you find is that the Roman Catholic Church who is the, the mystery form of that seventh head is portrayed by God Here, here's God's description here's the way that he says she is God describes her as a drunken painted up gaudy flesh seducing street walking religious horror who seeks to lure people into her bed through flattery and she defiles them in that bed she infects them with a religious disease that causes a HIV virus to seem like it is a stinking runny nose because this disease that she infects, infects people with doesn't just take their life it damns their soul to hell and Revelation 17 says that she has made herself drunk on the blood of the true Bible believers down through the ages because you see here's the way it goes y'all every person who refuses to crawl in the sack with her and defile themselves she's bent on persecuting them and torturing them and killing them and folks for the last 1600 years she has made herself drunk she gets off on the blood of the martyrs and there has been 50 million of them in the last 1600 years so and we need to we need to chill just a little bit we're just getting started this is the review 
and, and now listen, I don't want to offend you, but for God's sake, somebody needs to tell you what God has to say about that thing. Now, I'd never say that about your religion. I never would. I'm just telling you what God said. I'm not that cold-blooded. So, the woman is clearly identified as Israel. The great red dragon is clearly Satan himself. And then the next main character, number three on your outline, is the child. And I think this one is, is pretty obvious in light of the things we've already talked about in identifying the woman and the dragon. But the child, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says, And she, that is the woman, Israel, and she brought forth a man child or a, a male child. Okay, now, now look, look at verse 5. And, and I want you to think with me. When was that, y'all? When did that happen? It was 1998 years ago now, right? Approximately. It, it's talking, in, in, in verse 5, it's talking about his first coming when he was born in Bethlehem. And, and so that nobody could make any mistake about who this child is. You see, again, here, God's just going to give you the definitions. He's going to tell you right here exactly who this is so that nobody could make any mistake about who this man-child actually is. He gives us a key identifying mark. And what he does here is he points us. Now, we're right here at his birth. But what he does, we're right here at his first coming. And what he does is he points us to what he will do at his second coming. He, he says that this is the man-child, look at it in verse 5, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And obviously, if you know your Bible at all, you know that that's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, turn back to, to Psalm 2 for just a minute. Psalm 2 is a psalm that is all about the Lord Jesus Christ setting up his kingdom on the earth. If, few weeks ago we we covered this this entire psalm I guess it's been almost a couple of months now as we were coming through Revelation chapter 11 talking about the the kingdom the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ we we went to Psalm 2 and we covered the entire chapter there and let me just remind you in verse 7 what it does is it, it, it it talks about here in verse 7 the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us about the conversation that he had with his father just before he was begotten as a son when he was born in Bethlehem and he says that the father said to him in, in verse in verse 7 says the Lord hath said unto me thou art my son this day have I begotten thee now I, I don't want to be a jerk y'all but again I want to make sure that we, we don't ever make the, the same mistake that the New American Standard Version of the Bible makes when it's talking in John 1 18 about the Lord Jesus Christ because what it does in that verse in the New American Standard Version is it tells you that Jesus Christ was a begotten God that is not what the scripture teaches, not, not, not for a second. He is a begotten son. A begotten son. Now listen, if he is a begotten God, then you know what? The Jehovah's Witnesses are right. 
And every single one of us that are banking on the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation and our, our eternal destiny being in heaven, it ain't going to happen, y'all. Because, now listen, if he was a begotten God, then Jesus Christ was, was either a liar or he was a lunatic because what he did is he came to this planet and he said that he was equal to God, that he was the same essence of God, and there did come a day when he was begotten as a son. He came to this planet and took on human flesh. But now listen, if there was ever a time in eternity past when he was begotten as a God, then he is just that. He is a God, not the God. Jesus Christ is the great I Am. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah God in a human body. That's who he is. He is not a begotten God. But in Bethlehem, he became a begotten son. This is the conversation that the father is having at that period of time. And he says, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Verse 8, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. You know what that's talking about? That's talking about the second coming of Christ. Listen, verse 9. Thou shalt break them, here it is, with a rod of iron. You see, that's who Revelation 12:5 says this child is. The one who was begotten as a son at his first coming and the one who will rule the world with a rod of iron at his second coming. Now turn over to Revelation chapter 19. And let me show you over here, Revelation chapter 19, and in verse 11 of Revelation 19, heaven opens and reveals the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of heaven to set up his kingdom on the earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And verse 15 of Revelation 19 says, And out of his mouth go with a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, here it is, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And again, it's just what Revelation 12:5 says, that the man-child that was brought forth by the woman, the nation of Israel, would ultimately do. He would rule all nations with a rod of iron. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now turn back to Revelation chapter 12. So he nails the identity of the child here in verse 5 by pointing to what the child would ultimately do at his second coming. But what, he, what he's trying to show us, okay, now look at verse 4. What, what he's trying to show us in the last half of verse 4 and the first part of verse 5 is what actually took place at his first coming. And I want you to see this. Look at the, the middle of verse 4. It says, And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And we talked just a little bit earlier. We went into some pretty major detail when we were, uh, several weeks ago, when we were looking in verse, verse 2, uh, of this travailing birth process and how difficult and how painful it was for the, the, the nation of Israel to finally bring forth the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, because ever since Genesis 3.15, Satan had been trying to come against that seed. He had tried to, to corrupt that seed. And you see, what he was trying to do 
is he was trying to keep that man child from ever being born remember God got in his face and he says there's one that's coming from the seed of the woman and he's gonna crush your head and so what he's doing is he's desperately trying to find a way all through the 4,000 years of the Old Testament he is trying to find a way to stop that one from coming he's doing everything within his power to try to stop it but he couldn't it was a travailing and painful process but she did deliver and verse 4 and 5 let us know that once she did though buddy the devil was right there to devour him as soon as he was born you, you see that dragon Satan he had determined that he might not be able to stop him from being born he might not be able to stop him from taking on human flesh to pay for the sins of the world but he had determined that he could make that birth process an extremely difficult and painful thing. And he could make sure that though he couldn't stop him from being born, he could make sure that as soon as he was born, that he devoured him. Now let's just stop here for just a second. There are people that are in this room this morning. And I want you to know, the devil, all of your life, has sought to do something. You know what he sought? The same thing he did with the Lord Jesus Christ. He tried to keep him from ever being born. And all of your life, the devil has been pounding you, trying to find all kinds of different ways to keep you from ever being born again. From ever being born into God's family. And some of you today, as we're just nailing it right from the book and we're right in his dominion some of you need to you do you need to wake up and some of you need to literally physically wake up right now I, you know I, man I don't know how you do it with somebody screaming at you but you're sleeping but now listen listen some of you today need to spiritually just shake yourself and understand what's going on the devil's trying to keep you from being born into God's family and man, I, some of you folks that are in this room this morning, it's just been in the, just the last little bit that you were born into God's family. And you can look back over your shoulder now and you can see how he was fighting tooth and nail all along through your whole life to keep that from ever happening. But he couldn't keep it from happening, could he? You were, you know, this, that's a great place for an amen right there. Y'all need to, you need to get with it today, okay? He couldn't keep you from being born again. You were born into God's family. But now listen, don't miss the message. As soon as you're born into God's family, you know what? He's seeking something. 1 Peter 5, 8 even tells you, you've got an adversary now. And he's a roaring lion and he goes about seeking whom he may what? Devour. He, want, he couldn't keep you from being born into God's family. But now that he has, he wants to devour you. You see, that's why we... Week after week after week after week, we, we stand up here and we're just talking about discipleship. Discipleship. If you've been born again, if you're a child of God, you need to be discipled. You know why we tell you that? Because it says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it tells you that when you're a, a, a little child spiritually, you can't overcome the wicked one. You know why? You know why you can't overcome him? Because he says the way you overcome him is by the word of God. 
dwelling in you, by abiding in you. And when you're a new believer, it's not yet there. It's not yet abiding in you. And you know what? He's going to devour you. So you know what discipleship is? It's somebody coming into your life that's going to be looking to see where the devil's trying to devour you. And what they do is they help you to apply the Word of God so you can overcome that jerk. You see, it's not our little cute little program. It's not a follow-up thing. He wants to devour you as soon as you're born and you've got to get the Word of God to where somebody is coming with that thing. He says that the dragon stood before the woman to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, that'd be a beautiful Christmas card, wouldn't it? I mean, you, you, can, you can see it, can't you? You know, you open that thing, you got your, your quaint little stable going, you know? And here's Mary and Joseph, you know how they, they do. They got them looking all sublime and majestic there, you know? You got the little baby Jesus sitting in the manger looking all precious. The lights hitting everything just right. And you look, and right over the top of the nativity scene, there's a seven-headed, fire-breathing, smoke-blowing dragon coiled up and slithering above their heads. And then right down at the bottom, kind of reversed out in those white letters, it says, And the dragon stood before the woman to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now that's the way to get the folks' attention on your Christmas card list right there. I, no, you know what? I'm telling you. If I was an artist, man... That's what I'd be painting right there. I'd be, I'm, I'm telling you, I'd send those cards out so people understood that this is not a little game that we play. Now, obviously, that's not exactly the way that it came down, but that's the way that God saw it. But we can go right into the Gospels, and we can find the actual fulfillment of what verse 4, the end of verse 4, is talking about. Because you remember when Jesus was born... The dragon appeared, didn't he? The dragon appeared in the form of King Herod, who became afraid when he heard that there was one who was born king of the Jews. And according to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, He was exceeding wroth. He was totally ticked, if you will. He was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof from two years old and under. That's what verse 4 is talking about. Now Matthew chapter 2 lets us know that Herod was the earthly king who demanded the slaughter of all of those babies two years old and under. But what Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4 lets us know is the power that was actually working through Herod was a great red dragon. And the great red dragon was seeking to devour the Lord Jesus Christ as soon as he was born. He was coming against him. So now let's collect the pieces here. Verse 2 lets us know that the child would be brought forth by the nation of Israel after centuries of pain and travail. And verse 5 tells us that this child is the one that was begotten of God the Father as a son who would ultimately sit enthroned on the earth and rule all the nations of the world. And because he will, verse 4 says that he was hated by the devil and the devil, the dragon, would seek to devour him as soon as he was born. But verse 5 lets you know, check it out, 
that this seven-headed, fire-breathing, smoke-blowing, incredibly powerful dragon who is presently the God of this world, verse 5 lets you know it's there. What it lets you know is that he is no match for this little child. Because check this out. That dragon breathes out the command to slaughter every baby two years old and under through Herod. And listen, by the time that decree had gotten out, there was not a baby anywhere to be found in all of Judea. And buddy, the devil thought he had done it. He thought, after all of these centuries, man, after 4,000 years, he thought, I've finally destroyed the seed, man. He thought that he had devoured the man-child, but he didn't. Remember what happened? God had revealed to Joseph what the devil was doing, and Mary and Joseph and the Christ child escaped by going down into Egypt. And though every baby two years old and under was killed, and it was a terrible atrocity, he didn't get the man-child that verse 4 and 5 talk about. But now listen, don't you think for a minute that the dragon just rolled over and died at that point. Oh my goodness, I guess, I guess I'll never get him. Don't think for a second that he decided to throw in the towel there. Listen, you can go into the Gospels and what you can find, you, I mean, you can follow the dragon right on through Jesus' earthly ministry, constantly working to devour the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what, what are you talking about? Well, whereas at his birth, the dragon was working through Herod, by the time he began his earthly ministry, he was working through a group of people that were called the scribes and Pharisees. You know who they were? They were the religious bigwigs of Jesus' day. And listen, they were always, always, always plotting to kill him. You know why? Because they were of their father, the devil. They were being empowered by a great red dragon. For example, in Luke chapter 4, I want you to just cruise over there real quick. I don't know if we can turn you to, to all of these, but, but in Luke chapter 4, what takes place here is Jesus came into one of the synagogues in Nazareth. He walks into that synagogue, and when he does, somebody hands him the book of Isaiah. Now watch out. God in human flesh has got a book. He's got the book of Isaiah in his hands, and so what he does is he, he scrolls on over to Isaiah 61, and you know what he starts doing? He starts busting it, man. Right there in Isaiah 61, he starts talking about verses 1 and 2, and you know what he's doing? He's up there, and he's just telling it like it is, and by the time he could get finished, look in verse 28, everybody in the place was absolutely, totally ticked off. Now, you know what? Believe it or not, I've ticked off a, a few people in my lifetime when I was preaching. I know that's hard for you to believe, especially on a day like this. But you know what? I don't think that I've ever had the distinct privilege that Jesus had here in this verse of ticking off everybody in the room. Uh, you know? I mean, there's always been some, some sweet, you know, old saint back there that just thinks that the pastor hung the moon and, 
there's always a sweet young saint on the front row that's my wife, and at least there's two people in the room that didn't get ticked off. But now listen, everybody, everybody that's listening to him preach is ticked off. And you see, now, now you gotta, you got to understand something. They got ticked off because a lot of people have a hard time when they bump up against facts. I, I don't know if you, if you live, live long enough to know this yet, but, but facts can be downright stubborn things sometimes. And you know what? If you don't want to deal with the facts, and if you don't want to face the truth, then I'm just telling you, you're going to have an incredibly difficult time with this book, and you're going to have an incredibly difficult time with somebody who preaches this book, because check it out, this book isn't a book of fables. It's a book of facts. This isn't a book of tales. This is a book that is the truth. And this isn't a book that is going to tell you what you want to hear. This book is a book that's going to tell you what you need to hear. And you see, and that's why Paul wrote to Timothy over there. And we're in Luke 4. We go over to, to, to 2 Timothy for a second and check this out. This is just a little aside here. We, we need to get this in, though. He, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And look at what he says in verse 2. He says, Timothy, preach the word. Now, now, listen to what he's saying to him. He's saying, Timothy, don't just preach. Preach the word. When you stand before a group of people, Timothy, give them this book. And, and, and look at what he says. Don't just teach the word, Timothy. What? Preach it. Why? Oh, folks, would you listen to the warning? Look at the next verse. For the time will come. And, folks, you've got to understand. That time has come. It's here. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heed to themselves. Teachers having itching ears. And I'm telling you, you know what? You can go right down the line in that verse and every single thing that it describes is characteristic of the Christianity of our day. People don't want to come to church and be taught sound doctrine. They don't want to come and heed to themselves preachers. They don't like, you know what? People don't like to come to a place where somebody's nostrils are flaring and his eyebrows are down and he's waving his arms and he's loud and he's long and... and and you get convicted when you come. They don't heap to themselves preachers. They heap to themselves what? Teachers, teach me about relationships. That's Christianity in our day. People want to come and have some preacher massage them about the relationships of life. There's one relationship you need to get right, and it's with God. And when you get that one right, you're well on your way to start getting all the other relationships of your right. And, and you need to have somebody preach the word to you. Teach me, though, about happiness. Teach me about love. Teach me about peace. Teach me anything. Don't scratch me where I itch. Tell me what I want to hear. Just don't tell me any of the stuff that's that, that, going to cause me to be convicted about my sin. Oh, don't go there, preacher. 
Don't, don't convict me about my sin, my carnality, and my unholy life. Just come and let's just, let's just work it. Let's just work that thing. And let's just come together. And let's feel good when we leave. Verse 4 of 2 Timothy says that when Christianity comes to that point, they shall turn away their ears from, here it is, the truth turned into exactly what they want. Cute little stinking stories. And you see, that's exactly where Christianity is today. And when the Word of God is preached and sound doctrine is delivered, you can bank on it in the last days. You can just, you can just count on it. When it comes, just like it says there in verse 3, people won't endure it. They won't like it. I ain't ever going back there. If that sucker ever shuts up, I ain't ever going back there. But you check it out back in Luke chapter 4, and again, that was just a side. If you didn't like that, and flush it, but don't miss the fact that when Jesus was preaching way back in his day, Jesus ticked people off when they heard him preach. Now, I want you to know something. We never make it the goal around here to make people mad when we preach. But, but I, I do want to say this. If you can come in here and you can be a part of a false religious system and you can walk into this room and you can hear somebody come behind this sacred desk and start preaching the Word of God and you can walk out of here feeling good about the fact that you came to church and you heard a nice little sermon, then you know what? I'll just tell you, I don't believe that on that day I did my job. I, I think that unsaved people ought to leave this place one of two ways. I think they ought to leave either saved or mad. Now, obviously, my desire, I mean, the reason I preach like this is because I want to see them saved. But if they don't leave saved or at least contemplating their salvation, then I hope that they leave mad enough to leave this place and go get in this book to prove me wrong because, you know what, I know what's going to happen when they do. They're going to go get in this book and they're going to get saved. Listen, the absolute worst response that an unsaved person could have when they walk out of this church is that was really nice. Because if it, was, if it was just nice, you know what's going to happen? They're probably going to continue on in the false security of that false religious system that they're bound in. Or they're going to walk out of here and continue in the condemnation of their sin. And they're going to spend eternity in the flames of hell because we had a nice little church service. And listen, I'd rather you walk out of this building today just absolutely hating my guts if it would make you go get in this book and find out that the things that I'm telling you are the truth so that you could be saved than I would have you walk out of this building, shake my hand in the back and say, Pastor, that was lovely. That was just wonderful. It was such a blessing. And then you walk out of that door and end up dying and spending eternity in hell. I'd much rather have you leave ticked off today than that. And, and, and check it out. If you're here today and you're saved and you're part of this church and you're living in sin, you're living in disobedience and carnality, listen, if you can come in here week after week and you can be comfortable living in that kind of life, I'm just telling you, it's not right. Something isn't happening right here. We're not preaching the Word. I told you before, 10 years ago when I came to this church, I thought my job was to comfort the distressed. Now I know what time it is. I know we're living in the last days. And I know my job is to distress the comfortable. <laughs> listen. You see, now listen. That's what happened when Paul preached. You know what happened when Paul preached? He came into a city...
And he preached the word. And the Bible says that this book is a sword that divides. He'd come into a city and he would preach the word. He'd preach the word and it would either cause a revival or a riot. And most of the time, both. And when Jesus preached, the same exact thing happened. And, and, and I want you to know something. Here's Jesus preaching in the synagogue here in Luke chapter 4. And on this occasion, no one gets saved. Not a single soul. Well, I guess that wasn't of God. No one gets saved. Every single one of them got mad, so mad that they wanted to kill him. But understand... What's fueling that reaction in those scribes and Pharisees there in Luke 4? What's fueling them is a great red dragon. And Luke 4, 29 says that all the people that were there listening to him, look, look at it, they got up and they grabbed a hold of him and they dragged him to the edge of the city to throw him off the side of the hill. <laughs> And I know that there's a lot of you that love to do that to this one today. I mean, check it out. This is it. I mean, great red dragon fueling this thing, baby. They got him in their hands. They come to the edge of the hill. I mean, the devil's got him now. I mean, oh, hey, the Lord Jesus Christ may have escaped down in Egypt in the middle of the night when there was nobody looking before, but this time... A whole throng of people have got him in their hands. And they're ready to throw him to his death to the ground below. I mean, he's a goner. It's over. When all of a sudden, Luke 4, 30 says, check it out. He just simply passed through the midst of him and went on his way. Now you tell me how that happened. I mean, they're at the edge of the hill, and they've all got their hands on him. All of a sudden, here he just cruises by, and they're all going, where, where'd he go? I, ha I had him right here in my hands just a second ago. Where'd he go? Seeking to devour him. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple, and there he is again. He, he's busting it. And the more he speaks... The more infuriated the Pharisees are getting. And finally, the dragon prompts them to kill him. And I mean, hey, he's right there. I mean, they, they've all been standing right there. They've been listening to him. They've been, they've been talking to him. And, and, and while he's go, teaching all these things, while he's preaching all of these things, they say, that's it. We ain't, we ain't listening to this stuff anymore. We're going to do God a favor and we're going to kill him. And so they reach down to the ground to pick up stones to stone him to death. And again, I mean, they got him dead to rights, man. There's no way to escape. They reach down to pick up the stones to stone him, to kill him. They stand back up, and when they look up again, he's nowhere to be found. He just vanished. Verse 59 of John chapter 8 says that he walked right through the midst of them and passed right by him and here they are again they're all standing around saying where in the world did he go he was right here I mean we had the rocks in our hands we, all we did was where did he go in John chapter 10 
The dragons at it again, and it's the same deal. They pick up the stones to stone him. And, and this time, this time they've got the stones in their hands while they're still looking at him. I mean, you know, this before, I mean, at least, you know, they could say, well, I don't know where he went. I mean, I reached down, and he must have ran off at that time. Now, I mean, they're looking dead at him with the stones in their hand. They're still talking to him, and miraculously, John chapter 10, verse 39 says, he escaped out of their hand. And I'm wanting you to see... The dragon didn't roll over and die, y'all. That dragon, he still keeps trying to devour him. And every time that he thought it was about to happen, somehow, Jesus got away. And then he came down to the garden. And Jesus is with his disciples. He, he tried to tell them what was going to be coming down. And, and they just couldn't quite grasp what, what he was saying to them. I mean, he's, he's poured out his heart to these guys up in the upper room. And then they've come out of the upper room. And they've gone down into the garden. And when he got down into the garden, he's pleading with them. Hey, guys, I need you to pray for me right now. And, and they're, you know, they're, they're all just absolutely wasted. I mean, they're, they're all just worn out. You know how it is when, when you just cannot keep your eyes open? That's, that's the way they are. It, it's late and, and they're tired. They just can't stay awake. But while all this is happening, the dragon, the dragon is at it again. He wants to devour that man-child. And here's Jesus praying. And he hears it coming. He knows the dragon is coming. But he's coming this time with a band of soldiers. He's coming this time in a band of soldiers. A band, as, as Pastor Frank taught us when we're going through the life of Christ or the walk with Christ to the cross, a band of soldiers is approximately 600 men. And here come these 600 men with all the big wig Pharisees and, and chief priests. And, and it, it, it looks like it's getting ready to happen again. I mean, it looks like somehow Satan or, or Jesus is going to escape. Because they walk up to Jesus. And the disciples have, have woke up now. I mean, they're smelling the flames of the torches and all that deal, you know. And here comes this band of soldiers and the chief priests and the scribes and Pharisees. They walk up to Jesus and Jesus says... Uh, who you fellows looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and, oh, check it out. What Jesus does is he reaches back into the Old Testament and he grabs the title that God used to identify himself to Moses and the nation of Israel. And he looked at him and he said, and I don't know how he said it, but he said, I am. And check it out. When he said those words, just as soon as those words came out of his mouth, all 600 soldiers, every chief priest, and every Pharisee that was standing there and looking all rough, tough, and buff, every single one of them, when he said, I am, fell back on their dirty, stinking yellow keister like a little child that had been punched with a big right, man. Because you know what happened to them? They did get punched with a big right. The right hand of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great I am. And just about that time, the dragon must have thought, oh, buddy, here we go again. I thought I had him this time. I brought 600. I thought we were going to do it. But you see, Jesus knew what time it was. And he knew how this all fit into the plan. And much to the surprise and the pleasure of the dragon, he submitted to those soldiers. He spoke as the great I am, and he knocked them on their rear end to just show them something. But then, right after that, he, he submits to them. And now the dragon has finally got his chance.
And through Pilate and the Roman soldiers and the Pharisees, they grabbed the Lord Jesus Christ and they took him. And when they took him, that dragon began to beat him. And to beat him. And to beat him. And they mocked him. And they blasphemed him. And they humiliated him. And they scourged him until the skin was just literally stripped off of his back. And when he was nothing but a bloodied, swollen, disfigured, mangled mess, they laid him down on a splintery wooden cross and they began to pound the nails into his hands and his feet. And Buddy the Dragon was loving it. This was the moment that he had waited for for 4,033 and a half years. And then the dragon lifted up that cross into a hole in the ground. And the man-child hung there, suspended by the wounds in his hands and in his feet, suspended between heaven and earth. And if you looked at him there, you'd look and say, that is, he looks helpless. He looks pitiful. He looks like the victim. And finally, he died. And the dragon said, yes! I've finally done it! I've finally chewed him up and spit him out! I've finally devoured him! And listen, he, along with all, every demon in the unseen world, they laughed, and they cheered, and they partied, and they shouted, and they carried on like you could never imagine. And I mean, it went on for days, man. They are rejoicing. They finally devoured the man-child. It's finally happened. And just when all the demons were saying, Who is like unto the dragon? And while the dragon was just brushing off his hands as if to say, I guess I put an end to him. All of a sudden, three days later, after they put the Lord Jesus Christ in the tomb, something began to happen down in the heart of the earth, y'all. There was a rumbling that was beginning to take place down there, and something was going on. And immediately, the dragon and all of his demons stopped their partying, and they shut their dirty, stinking mouths and they said, you know what? We better go check this out, guys. We better go find out what's happening. And they descended down into the lower parts of the earth to find out what was going on. And they got there just in time to look across that great gulf that was fixed, that at that time divided hell from what is called Abraham's bosom or paradise. And here they are. They shut their mouth. They descend down and they look across that gulf just in time. To see the man-child standing in front of all of those Old Testament saints. And all at once, in the moment, in the twinkling of a lie, you know what he did? He led that whole crowd straight out of there and he brought them up to the Father in heaven. And the demons and the dragon are looking around saying, what in the world is going on here? And as he's leading them up to the Father, he stops off in that tomb long enough where they had laid his body. He went in there long enough to re-enter that thing and to bring it to life and long enough to remove the napkin that they had used to wrap his head in. And he started in that, in that tomb and he neatly folded it back again. And when he did, he said, now you can roll that stone away. And you know what? I, I'm told that in Israel, if you go into a restaurant and you're eating a meal, and you need to get up. There's one way that you fold your napkin to let the folks know that you're, you're just going to be gone for just a little while, but you'll be coming back. Now, don't get ahead of me. But then there's another way that you fold that napkin. 
When you want the folks to know that you came there to do what you came to do, and you can go ahead and give this table to someone else because you're not coming back. And let me tell you something. On resurrection morning when Jesus got up in that grave, he folded that napkin in such a way to let everybody on this planet and the dragon and every demon of hell that had, that had, that had rejoiced over his death and really thought they had devoured him, he folded that napkin in such a way as to let every person know I came into this place to do what I came to do. I have buried the sins of the world, and now that I have, you can go ahead and you can give this thing to somebody else because I ain't coming back here no more. And I want you to listen to me. He's never going to die again. The Lord Jesus Christ is risen, y'all. He's alive. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, says that the priest in the Old Testament, he had to offer daily sacrifices before God and he could never sit down because those sacrifices of the Old Testament could never take sins away. But he comes along in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12 and he says, but this man, the man-child, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down. No priest had ever done that. And he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 13, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering, that is through his death, burial, and resurrection, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. He did it once. He'll never have to do it again. He'll never die again. He'll never be separated from his father again. He'll never, ever, ever, ever say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Never again, buddy. Because he prayed, paid the price of sin once and once was all it took because he rose victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And he'll never die again. And that dragon thought... He thought that he had devoured him. But he got up. He got up out of the lower parts of hell and he came into that grave where they had laid his body and he got up. He rose from the dead and folks, because he did, one of these days in the not too distant future, because he got up, every single one of us is going to get up. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to get up. Now check it out. The dragon tried to keep him from being born. And that's why it was such a travailing, painful process in Israel's history. He tried to keep him from ever even being born. But he couldn't. He tried to devour him as soon as he was born. But he couldn't. He tried to devour him all the way through his earthly ministry. But he couldn't. He thought that he had devoured him. When they put him in the grave, he tried to keep him in the grave. But he couldn't. And once the Lord Jesus Christ had come to the earth, he, that devil wanted to make sure that he would never be able to sit on the throne of glory again. He was going to try to do everything he could to stop it, and he thought that he had. But he couldn't. The end of verse 5, I don't know where you are right now, but in Revelation chapter 12, in verse 5, We need to check the air condition in here. Verse 5 says, And her child was caught up unto God, and check this out, and to his throne. 
And of course, this is a reference here to the ascension. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Now check it out. After being born and living a sinless life on this planet for 33 and a half years, he was crucified, buried, risen from the dead. He spent 40 days on this earth with his disciples. And then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, he ascended back to his father and took his seat at the right hand of God, at the very throne of God. So you know what that means? Look, look at verse 5. You see that colon in verse 5 after the word iron? That represents how much time? How much time does that represent, that little colon right there? You know how long that is? That's 33 and a half years right there. You, you know what God does in verse 5? Watch this now. He takes you from his birth in the first part of verse 5 right on to his ascension in the second part of the verse. I mean, there's a 33 and a half year gap right there. He skips right over his entire life on the earth. You know why he does that? He, he does that because he wants to show you something. You know what he wants to show you? He, he's wanting to show us that the great powerful, fire-breathing, smoke-blowing red dragon who deceives and intimidates and dominates the entire world, he's wanting to let us know in verse 5 that he is no match for his only begotten son who was born as a little human baby in the city of Bethlehem. You say, well, what do you mean? You see, the end of verse 4 tells you that Satan was there when he was born to devour him. And when God comes along in verse 5 and takes you from his birth to his ascension, what he's doing is he's screaming out a message to us. He's letting us know something. He's letting us know that Satan failed to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ at his birth. And the fact that he ascended to his throne in glory proves that Satan failed to destroy him in his life and even in his death. You see, folks, the ascension is the indisputable proof of Satan's inability and failure to defeat the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he came up out of the lower pit of hell, the fact that he came up out of the grave, the fact that 40 days later he ascended to the Father is proof that Satan is no match for this man-child that was born in Bethlehem. He is incapable. He doesn't have the ability. He cannot defeat the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, he's seated at the right hand of God in all power and glory. But he's not just seated there. According to Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, guys, listen. You know what it says? It says that the Spirit of Christ now dwells in us. That should have brought a good amen right there, man. He's seated at the right hand of God, but He's not just there. He dwells in us. And that's why 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And you know what that means, guys? If the Spirit of Christ, who defeated Satan through His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, if He now dwells in us, what it means is that we don't have to live under the intimidation of the devil and all of his imps any longer. We don't have to live under their deception, verse 9. We don't have to live under their domination. We don't have to live fearing their destruction. The Lord Jesus Christ ascended to His throne in 
glory. And because He did, Psalm 98 and verse 1 says, Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for He hath done marvelous things. Check this out. His right hand and His holy arm. The Lord Jesus Christ hath gotten Him the victory. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 says that He spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 it says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says that the Lord Jesus Christ destroyed him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And that's why Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 55, and he screams out, Oh death, where is thy sting? Oh grave, where is thy victory? And in 1 Corinthians 15.57 he says, But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4 says, that listen to it, that whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Are you hearing that? Listen, if you're born again, God is letting you know that you have the power in you to overcome the world, and he's already told us back in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, all that is in the world, you know what it is? All that is in the world, it, it comes down to three things. He says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he comes along in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, and he says, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. He's letting us know that we have everything that we need to overcome the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Listen, and this, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our, do you know what the next word is? Even our faith. And you know what faith is, guys? It don't make it hard. Faith is simply believing God. It's simply taking God at His word. It's believing what it says. And, and you know why some of you never can seem to live in the, the victory of overcoming the worldly pull of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life? According to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, it's because you really don't believe what this book says about who you are in Christ and the victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil that is yours through the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, God, through this message today, as He has shown you His awesome power and glory and His victory over Satan, what He's trying to get you to see is that he's wanting you to start living in the victory that is yours in Christ. And start coming to the place now that you've been born again, that you overcome the world because the Spirit of Christ lives in you. And you can overcome the world. You've got the power. Every person who is born again has got that power in them because it's the Spirit of Christ that dwells in you and lives in you. And God is wanting you today to leave this place leaving in the victory that He died, was buried, and rose again and ascended to the right hand of God the Father to give to you. And it's time. 
It's time we started overcoming the world. And the victory that overcomes the world is our faith, believing what God says is true about us. And it's time. And if you're here today and you're not saved, now don't, don't, don't anybody pack up on me. If you're here today and you're not saved, you've obviously been born physically, but you've never been born of God. You've never been born again. You've never experienced spiritual birth. Listen, there, there's, there's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. That's exactly why God brought you to this place today. God is in the process of seeking to draw you to Himself. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 says that the grace of God that brings us salvation appears to all people. And today is your day. God brought you here to show you the awesomeness of His power and to show you the wondrousness of His grace to save you. And the Bible says today, if you'll hear His voice, harden not your heart, but rather surrender your heart and let Him save you today. You say, I don't even know for sure if I know what that means. What it means is simply this. Because of our sin, we're separated from God because God is holy. But God is not just holy. God is love. And so God became a man, came to this earth to pay for our sin. He took your sin and my sin upon Himself because He intended to pay our debt because of His great love. It's the only way that we come into the relationship with God that He designed us to have when He created us. And God has brought you here today so that you could understand that there's a battle. There's a battle for you ever being born into God's family. He wants to do anything that He can possibly do to keep that from ever happening in your life. And God was gracious enough to bring you here today to listen longer than you wanted to to some guy scream his guts out about the fact that God has given us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can leave here today with your sin removed. You can leave here today with a relationship with God. You can leave here today in victory. You can leave here today with the confidence that when you draw your last breath that you will spend eternity with Him. Or if the Lord Jesus Christ comes in the clouds first that you'll be caught up in the moment in the twinkling of an eye to spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we conclude this morning, our pastors are going to be up on either side of this room. And it's our invitation for you that we're hanging around for you. If you've got questions, if you want to, if you want to talk to someone about what all of this means and how this just pans out practically in your life, if you've got what, whatever, if you've got questions, come talk to these men. They'll, they'll get somebody that can talk with you. If you're a lady, they'll get a lady that can talk with you and just begin to, to show you some things of what, what the Bible says. But for God's sake, and for your sake, if God is speaking to you today, don't harden your heart. Surrender to what He's trying to do in your life right now. And come into that relationship with God. Let's bow our heads. Oh Lord, I, I do pray 
for people in this room that have never received you as their Savior. Oh God, may this be the day of salvation for them. I I pray that even now you'd help them to, to see this clearly that battle that has been waged against their soul to keep them bound in their sin and oh God would you reveal to them that grace that brings salvation today oh Christians would you pray for for folks like that today pray for their souls and if you're here and you are and claim to be a believer in their sin in your life for God's sake confess that today he's given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ you do have the power to overcome the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life believe God today take him at his word confess that to the Lord even now oh God would you would you please do your work in the lives of people here today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.